Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to Second Opinion with me, Dr. Christian. This is by way of an oral tincture, a tonic, a poultice, guaranteed to make everything better in 30 minutes or less. However, I must just make it clear that if you feel unwell, you should seek medical help, either by using the NHS 111 helpline, consulting your GP, or visiting your nearest hospital. Right, it wouldn't be Second Opinion without our second opinion, would it? Alex? I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> True. Does that work? I kind of you are our second opinion. I am the second opinion. I'm the second opinion that doesn't actually have any magical background whatsoever. So I'm just sort of the person in the corner going, what on earth are you on about? We like that. We yeah. need that sometimes. And it wouldn't be, of course, second opinion without a very, very special guest in the studio. And today... We've kind of got medical royalty with us, actually. Um, our guest is Professor Dame Sue Hill. Now, I've already got name envy, haven't you? Or type I really envy. have. <laughs> how, how do they know which bit goes to first? What, does Professor Trump Dame or Dame's Trump Professors? <laughs> to answer that question, you need to look at Debrett's, actually, which tells you everything oh. that you need to do. But uh, Did you the, do that? I did, actually. <laughs> uh, the... Um, Professor, so the academic title goes with your surname and the damehood goes with your Christian name. Oh, and oh, that's what did you know sets... this before? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. It's a rare opportunity, I think, for most of us, yes. sadly. But I want to be a Professor Dame. Oh, you? Yes, I'd love to be. Oh, yeah, right. I think my chances are, are slimming down yeah. as I get older. I... Yeah. Oh, well. But listen, we, we've digressed. Already we've digressed. You're not doing your job, Alex. So, so is the Chief Scientific Officer for England, no less. Um and today's subject really is genomics, because you head up this new branch that the NHS has launched of NHS genomics. What, what, what is it? Tell us. So I do, as well as being Chief Scientific Officer, which, uh, you know, what comes with that is a whole raft of other responsibilities. Uh, but of course, what's integral to that is, is genetics and genomics. So looking at the study of all the genes in, in the human body and all the individual letters that make up our genetic code. But what I've been doing for the last five years or so is firstly leading the NHS's contribution to the 100,000 Genomes Project that was launched by uh, David Cameron as a legacy uh, to the London Olympics. Uh, 
uh, where it um, in its aims wanted to keep the UK at the forefront of genomics and genomics research and so the project set out to sequence 100,000 genomes from patients and their families with rare disease and from patients with cancer. What led to that together with all the other work we were doing um, in thinking about the genetic laboratory structure we needed in the NHS for the future was we coupled our learning from the 100,000 Genomes Project, how the NHS responded to that, with this new technology that gave better benefits for patients and our public, with saying this is the time to introduce a new genomic medicine service where at its core was improving diagnoses for patients and their families, but also making sure that we coupled that with um, understanding the type of treatments uh, that an individual may respond to and therefore them get a better outcome. You, you started off actually by saying leading the world in. I've always felt we probably rather lag behind um up, maybe up until now. It, it, is that the case or am I doing us a disservice? I think probably doing us a disservice, actually, because, uh, I mean, right back from Darwin, uh, many of the technological changes associated with looking at DNA, so those basic genetic building blocks of life, have come from the UK. Uh, from Fred Sanger, for example, uh, for other people who've looked but at But I suppose in medical terms, have we sort of embraced what they might mean quickly enough? Or have we, I, I felt we've been a bit reticent, whereas other countries are, are doing it more not, than we are. Not really, Wrong again? actually. Damn it, I'll I think never what, be a professor, uh, Dame. I, I think, one, we've had really uh, fantastic academic developments in this country. That's the first thing. The second, since before the NHS was born, we had the very first genetic counselling clinic held at Great Ormond Street in 1946. So we've been leading the way in terms of looking at how um, an individual's genetics, how an individual's genes might influence the, the type of disease, the type of condition they may uh, present with. And our laboratory infrastructure and what we've been able to do in the NHS prior mm. to what we're doing now, which is definitely world leading, which mm. we can come back to, mm. uh, we, we've been the envy of the world and always having an integrated healthcare system like the NHS with the ability to go back over or our, our history, our patient history since we were born and our families, our parents, then that, that makes us quite unique across the world. So couple that with our ability to um, look more extensively at all those that are genetic code, that definitely puts us into a world-leading position. And indeed, we're, we're the first healthcare system in the world to routinely introduce looking at all those letters, whole genome sequencing, into the NHS over this summer. Are we doing it already then? Sorry, I'm just getting my mind, I'm getting my mind around so many things. Um, are we using genomes within the NHS now? Are we looking at that data? now yes. already. So, so what we're doing it's yeah. all about technicalities here mm -hmm. but we're looking at about it, that's in terms of the totality of what we can look at. We can look about at about 1% of the whole genome in, in the NHS now. 
and that either run on something we call large panels, so lots of genes on a particular panel that is looked for an individual, or in looking at give, some... Give us, sorry, give us some sort of real patient examples. So, for instance, if you were a family with... Could, would you mind? So, so, so if, if you were a family with um, a, a rare... So with, with a, a type of diabetes that happens in the young where you um, there are, for example, five different treatments associated with knowing what type of uh, genetic variant. So in terms of that service, which is run out of Exeter, they, run, they look at about 1% of the whole genome. And then as a result of that, they can decide whether somebody who's got monogenic diabetes or, or sort of juvenile diabetes or something called MODI, mature onset of diabetes in the young, whether they might need a very simple tablet, whether they need insulin, whether they need more extensive type of surgical intervention. So it's making it much more precise. It's making it much more precise. And part of our genomic medicine service is about how we can align this with the what's called the four P's of personalised medicine. You know, we always like a group of acronyms. <laughs> together. Help us remember things. Yes. <laughs> the four P's, you know, so you make a so that it could be used for preventative and predictive healthcare. Because if your genetics can tell you looking at the whole genome, whether you might develop a disease like some types of car, cardiac disease, then preventative action can be taken. Some of that might be tablets, some of it could be lifestyle. The second is what you've said already, which is a more precise diagnosis uh, associated uh, with, with that um, individual. The third is then how do you make it? How do you tie it up with medicines or surgery to make the outcome better for the individual? Because we know between 30 and 50% of medicines are not effective. Right. And we know one in 15 hospital episodes are associated with adverse drug reactions. And the fourth P is, is always, there's always good to have four Ps, don't you think? Um, the fourth P is around the participatory role for sort of patients and the public. So what is it they can do in a sort of contract with the healthcare professional to improve their lifestyle? And ask not start. what your doctor can do for you, yeah. but what you can do, do for you your doctor. Exactly. So I suppose as well, with the th when you just mentioned that 30, 40% of the drugs aren't necessarily working, um, then that's a huge cost to the NHS. It's sort of like giving out pills that probably costing the NHS a fortune and they're not actually doing anything. Exactly. So we spend, and this is rising year on year, sort of between 16 and 17 billion pounds on drugs each year. Uh, a lot of that, as Dr Christian will know, is, is about done in, in, in a way that's often referred to as empirical prescribing. So if it's based on you, you've got experience and you, you know that a particular type of drug might be appropriate for what the patients come to see you and therefore um, there's a prescription of that particular drug. There's also a lot of expectation by the patient who presents to the doctor of walking out of the door with a, with a drug. But many of those we don't know 
how they act, we know how they work, but within the the individual's body, especially if how they work is related to the changes in their genetic code, we haven't looked at that to well, date. Not all of us have looked at it, but but yeah. that was You've beautifully queued up for that. I mean, th- this I've was I, it. Always struck me as prescribing is really very unscientific, very hit and miss. You just kind of think of a beta blocker you quite like and that isn't restricted on your list of what you can prescribe. And that's the one you prescribe. It, you know, and it might work. Antidepressants, the classic example, masses and masses and masses of antidepressants. You just sort of pick one based on the symptoms, almost literally, don't you? And then hope it works. And if it doesn't, you hope the patient actually comes back and you try another one. And I was filming a TV series and this sort of thing came up and I had my um, drug sensitivity testing done, my genetics done. This is in front of me here. You can have a look at it, some of it. Some of it's well private, but um, (laughs) I had sort of my which medications are going to work for me and which wouldn't. And this was so eye-opening for me because the first thing it tells me, and I didn't know, I didn't want to know about cancer risk and cardiovascular disease risk. It was for a telly show. I just wanted to know... So could you say that? I don't want to know yeah. about... Yeah, right, OK. Because that would scare purposes, me, you see. For these purposes. To a certain extent, yes. Right, I, I, I said, I don't want to know this, but actually I'm quite interested in drug testing. I think that's really interesting. And they tell you a few basic things. So the first thing is I have, you know, high levels of something called homocysteine in my blood. I've got hyperhomocysteinemia. Um, That leads you to a slight predisposition to clotting. Now, it's interesting because my dad has had two two DVTs, deep vein thrombosis in his legs, and he's had a pulmonary embolus, a big clot in his lungs. He's fine. And I thought, oh, I know where that's come from and why. Because in my genetics, it basically sort of explains my dad's problems. That was really so. But more frightening than that, actually, was you then go and have a look at the sorts of anticoagulants that I'd probably be stuck on as I go into hospital. Sorry, anti what? So let's say clot busters. For, they're not quite right, clot thank you. Blood thinners, blood thinners, right, all right? right? So I go into hospital with my big red swollen leg with my clot in my leg, right? And I've had a DVT and they're going to put me on the standard sort of first line medication. And my genetics tells me that that medication wouldn't work for me. And I would have no idea, and my doctors would have no idea until I got my second DVT or my PE or my stroke or whatever it was, and then I definitely wouldn't know about it. So it was really, really fascinating, and it goes through all the different drug classes. And you can have a look. Um, the antidepressants were really interesting because it tells you, don't bother with this, it's not going to work for you at all. This one will work, but you need it in a much higher dose than is usually prescribed. Well, you know, none of this really happens at the moment. There's very, very... I think in cancer, we use your genetics a lot more to target your treatments. In HIV, we use it. I can't think of that many other areas, but this this is general medicine. Your ordinary, everyday punter off the street who needs a, you know, an antidepressant or a beta blocker, we can say exactly, straight away, which one is most likely to work for them and which one is likely not to give them side effects. So in your line of work, it's the idea that one day we'll all get this roadmap. We will all have this sort of, from birth, we will have an idea of exactly what genome, what genomes we've got Thingy. going on. Things, things. I'm getting very confused <laughs> with genes, genomes, all yeah. the rest of it. But we will have this sort of DNA map that we can then have more effective, specific targeting of our healthcare system so individually. So first of all, we're working to introduce 
this. So what we call pharmacogenomic profiling. Crikey. So it's yeah. a name. We like long words. Uh, Don't say that. Uh, but <laughs> essentially, where we're, we're looking at this, we're using the, the outcome of the work we've done as part of the 100,000 Genomes Project to really understand how we could introduce um, an understanding of, of pharma, pharmaceutical so medicines with genomic changes. And at the moment, we've got something called 43 drug gene pairs, which we think will be important in the NHS to start to work on. And so later this year, we will be rolling out the results from the 100,000 Genomes Project into the NHS and understanding what this means in terms of implementation in a health system rather than just for an individual right. and, and their doctor. Because that's part of my, my job is to make sure we can implement something from sort of up in Cumbria right down to the, the Isles of Scilly, for example, in a systematic way mm -hmm. and to have all the right alerts in place, including in, in uh, primary care. But so alongside that, we are also looking, instead of this being associated with just a, with having another test, having a whole genome sequence for a particular diagnosis they're looking at because of how you've presented to that particular clinician, we're looking at doing pharmacogenomic profiling, so these gene drug pair testing on their own for just the same reason Dr Christian had his done to really look at what, how important that will be. Once we've moved through this and we've also had you know, a public discussion, uh, a, a debate around what we do and uh, with newborns and newborn screening, then, you know, in, in looking at where the future might go, you could see that, that individuals at birth could be given a profile. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
I just wanted to share my own story, if I can, with uh, having breast cancer sort of some uh, nearly sort of 16 months ago. I was... um, uh, in the 100,000 Genomes Project was still recruiting on the cancer arm. I was very keen to have my both my tumour, my cancer uh, sequence, as well as my blood, because um, sequencing my blood tells us about what I might have inherited. So what is part of our sort of everyday, um, what we were born with genetics versus what the, the tumour, what the changes have been as part of my, my body to whatever, you know, who knows what actually caused my, my breast tumour, but actually it is caused by a genetic change. So I wanted to know what that might mean uh, for me, even though I'd had quite extensive uh, testing on the biopsy side. And what that actually showed me from the tumour is that I actually had a very low mutational burden, so it wasn't a very active tumour. It found most of the things that had been found by standard of care testing in the NHS, but it also pointed me towards a clinical trial that might be beneficial to me, even though we didn't know what the outcome at the moment is of that drug on longer term uh, pathways for people with cancer. The testing of my blood revealed that I don't carry the BRCA genes. Uh, so, uh, sorry, the BRCA genes. Can the, you remember the BRCA genes that Angelina Jolie yes. had uh, her breasts and her sort of uterus, her uterus removed, her womb removed uh, because of having. Uh, the BRCA gene. And she'd had the test. So she'd had this initial testing that you had when you were trying to say to them, I want this brought into consideration when you're treating me. But she had the sort of preventative one, didn't she? The first. She had a very strong family history because of her mother. Yeah. But she's the most sort of famous case Mm. that we often refer to of uh, of the BRCA gene. Mm. But it just confirmed that I didn't have that gene or any other genes that, that meant that I was more susceptible to develop, to developing either breast or other types of of cancer associated with BRCA genes, but also other genes that um, are important in the development of bowel cancer, for example. I didn't have either of those. That's fascinating. It is fascinating, but would you like to know? That's the, that was my next question, <laughs> because if in an ideal world we do all have this information. Are we then saying to people, look, you may well get cancer in your lifetime and then will we sit there with this time bomb going off and worry about the fact that one day we might get cancer? Is this the flip side of it and the, the, the side where you go? It depends what can be done about it and what, how good our screening is. So if you could have yearly screenings that are likely to pick it up early, why wouldn't you want to know? If there were even perhaps treatments that we haven't yet developed that would stop that cancer developing, as let's mm. say an immunotherapy. So as soon as a mutation occurred, you had had a vaccine specifically for you that would immediately go in and zap that particular mutation. Job done. It, it, it's a no-brainer to me. But... I think the public are very suspicious of this sort of thing, and I, I, I think they, I think they are, because there's part of me that goes, I, I, I'm sold, I'm with you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to. But what the say, alarm bells But I can ringing. imagine that I would be. There might be something that's going. Oh my god, I might have a heart attack, you know. And there's nothing that's going to be able to stop that. I could maybe change my lifestyle a bit, but oh, I'm living this life in this time bomb, and it could go off at any moment. That's kind of, I think, the scare tactics that you're probably having to deal with, isn't it? 
It is, and I, I think as we move into this into this territory, then we do have to look at the ethical implications, the level of support that are required uh, for individuals and families, the impact on families, because it's not straightforward, especially in our diverse communities, for example. So all of that needs to be um, to be considered as we start to roll this out. And therefore, you know, as we as we go forward, People at the moment have to, within whether it's within our new NHS service or the project we've been doing, they have to consent to receive that information back. And some don't. But we also have to make sure that we can wrap around those people who need that support, genomic counselling and other opportunities to understand what this might mean for families. But, for example, if, if we did more extensive testing for BRCA, uh, genes, then one could essentially identify people earlier and as Dr Christian said actually start to either add in different types of surveillance or uh, or give people the choice for what it is they can do. The challenge with all of this is when do you do it on, a peop- on a, an individual's life journey? Mm. Do our, right, this is really base and I think you've, you've already referred to this do our genes, does our makeup change during our lifetime? Does, does stuff change? And I, I, yes see, and I no. am the really base level. Yes and no is the answer. Scientific isn't it? knowledge here. So, so, so yes and no. So there, <laughs> there are, in terms of genetics, there are things that you will inherit from your parents. Right. So that's the start off. That's where I am at the beginning. <laughs> yes, but but equally, as we've seen uh, within both within the NHS services as they are now and within the 100,000 Genomes Project, even within newborn babies, we can find something called de novo mutations. They are new genomic changes that have happened just as that individual has developed in the, in, in the womb, in utero. And actually during a life course. So cancer's a good example of, especially with me not having inherited the BRCA genes, that my development of my breast tumour has happened over time because something's triggered that, that change, that genetic change uh, to enable that tumour uh, to grow and to express all the things that it did. When we're at school, you learn about sort of, you know, evolution and Darwin and and Mm. survival of the fittest or actually survival of the fitter, I think is what he actually said. Um, You know, which seemed like this long process of forcing change through multiple generations. But actually, you can cause genetic change. I'm not talking about sort of a mutation caused by radiation over quite a quick time. There was a famous study during the Second World War when um, it was in Holland, in Amsterdam, when... Basically, the people of, of, of Amsterdam were sort of starved, but the Germans surrounded them, didn't allow any food in, um, and they lived on next to nothing for a very long time. And when we sort of studied them, the next few generations after, they had a massive obesity problem going forward because the mothers, we think, at that time, I'm, I'm really simplifying this, I should mm. say, for anyone who's read this study, please don't write in complaining, but... You know, in a nutshell, the mothers had learnt to sort of lay down and store food in a far more efficient way, which they passed on to their offspring. But that unfortunately meant that at a time of plenty, those offspring were far, far more likely to lay down and store their food and get fat. And and that was a change, a sort of, you know, that had occurred 
within one or two generations only and quite a profound change too. That's um, fascinating, isn't it? It's, it's, it the, the whole thing, I think, is is absolutely fascinating, and I, I suppose it's, it is just education. As and because when I think of we were talking about giant giant apples, you know, when you think about GM crops or something yeah. like that, and the the bad press that's been surrounded that. So it's so I suppose it is sort of like a PR mission as well to try and say this is actually great stuff that well, could when you said public streamline your <laughs> yeah. health I thought, system. Uh, uh, oh. Yeah, it, it is a conversation. Mm. And last week, Ipsos Mori uh, published a report in, in conjunction with Genomics England and NHS England had a role in that, which was about a public dialogue around genomics. Um, and indeed, Dr. Christian and myself have have, have sat on a panel discussion around um, part of that public dialogue around genomics and genomic data, for example, that was on. But what it demonstrated was that there's tremendous support, actually, for um, the use of genomic information um, and information above and beyond yourself. So that's what I was very keen to donate my data so that it could be used not just for me, but for for other people with the same condition or for people in, in, in the future. So there is a lot of support for that altruism uh, within society, uh, but also a recognition that the, the general person in in the lay public doesn't know very much about mm, this mm. and they associate it with that inheritance of certain things from one's family and do you or don't you want to know that rather than how it might help us um, target and make treatments more personalised in the NHS and that's where we actually need to be or to in, indeed help us to improve knowing what has caused a particular set of conditions that a patient goes to see their doctor about and that's that bit coming back to the four p's about it being much more precise and objective as well as the ability to be much more personalized in terms of in it, the drug intervention because we do know exactly as you as you, dr christian found out is some drugs just won't work if i was like dr christian and i had had my dna testing done possibly privately because obviously i can't get that on the nhs at the minute but if so I did do, if I did, yeah. if I did do that, would would my doctor listen to me if I said on page four it says that this this drug's not going to work for me or whatever? Do you think are people within the NHS listening completely to that? I think it it would be fair to say that we are on a journey, right? But I think when doctors. Uh, understand that by giving a drug that there might be no response or the response the drug may be toxic to an individual and they have um, you know they would have adverse reactions then I don't think any doctor would would not follow that advice I mean it would be, be but it would be yeah totally <laughs> negligent not to do that and where would you like to see genomes within the NHS in five years time we're talking about this hundred thousand genome project I mean will that be done will we be looking at the data from that I mean where would you like five years time what is the goal Okay, so last October we launched the NHS Genomic Medicine Service, which is, you know, a brand new genomic medicine service in the NHS that brings together all of our expertise, but also says this will only benefit people 
if it's mainstreamed. So it's part of saying this is a new service with experts, but we've got to work with every single specialty in the NHS, with primary care and with patients. As I said sort of slightly earlier, um, we will be introducing into the NHS and we'll be the first healthcare in the system in the world to introduce whole genome sequencing this summer with a focus on all children's cancers on um, other types of uh, cancers in bony tumours called uh, sarcoma, some specialist blood tumours in in adults, and for about 21 uh, rare diseases that affect uh, either children or young people or adults. So that is the start. What the NHS long-term plan did, and we we published that earlier this year, it set out our five-year commitments. So it said over the next five years, we're going to sequence, whole genome sequence, look at all the letters of 500,000 people. Mm -hmm. In... Also, we will be further developing the offer within the NHS, particularly around cancer, to do more comprehensive testing than we've done to date because it is variable in terms of what is done. So a much better offer. And that we will start to, through genomics, start to identify those people in in the population that have something called familial hypercholesteremia, which means they have high circulating fats in their in, in their blood that they've inherited right that they've inherited but that we want to detect those but also by understanding their the the variance in the genes that are associated with that inheritance that actually points us to different types of treatments that that patient may need Sorry, so this is all set out um so we've got a plan but we're equally working on secretary of state's five million genomic analyses over the same time period as well can i just go back to that the, the fats in the blood what what's why are we studying those what could they lead to is that cancer as well or is that something else what we know is that with undetected high fats in in the blood leave leads to a, a high percentage of deaths in the under 50s, particularly in males, but not a, only in males, in, in, in females as well. So the by detecting earlier, it means that we can impact early. And that early may even be in during teenage years, for example. But so we, we've set ourselves a goal of increasing um, the... Uh, it's a condition that affects one in 250 in the population. We've set ourselves a goal of getting the detection rate up to a quarter of all those who may have it right. over the next five years. But what it means is once you identify someone who's got it, then you need to start to look at family members in something we call cascade testing. And that's the same as what happens if you look for cancer susceptibility genes. You need to look to see what else uh, that means in terms of individual family members and whether they've inherited it or not mm -hmm. and therefore are susceptible. We have to wrap up, I think. But um... It's fascinating. I could go on all day because um, yeah, I, I, I am the person that you're trying to get to who has no knowledge of this and um, yeah, well, needs to, to learn about it. I want to leave with a plea, which is that, you know... I, I think it, it, it shames us all, I think, that millions and millions of people still go to bed hungry, you know, every single night on this planet. And we could, we already have the technology 
to do something about that with the genetic modification of food. But because we in the developed world don't like the idea of messing about with foods or moving genes around, I know we, this is slightly not the same subject, but it's I think it's relevant, you know, with the Sun's famous headline, Frankenfoods, mm. we don't do it. And so millions of people still go to bed hungry. Um, and basically what we're doing is we're putting our feelings over facts and that is not part of the scientific method at all and i think you know there will be a similar suspicion with this genetic testing i think there'll be a feeling with big brother is watching you type thing which you know is ironic as george orwell you know famously said if liberty means anything at all it means the right to tell people what they don't want to hear now that might happen occasionally with genetic testing but it is such a powerful tool um for the future of medicine and for the future of all of us individually, as far as predicting what we're going to get, being able to treat it and developing new treatments, particularly for those rarer diseases that really struggle to find treatments mm. because trials are just very, very hard to do because there aren't enough cases of them. I'd like to see everybody on board with this. Are you all on board? I'm definitely on board. Sold? I'm there, sold. Well, that's about it for Second Opinion. Thank you so much to Alex, my newly genetically modified co-host, for being so, um, well, unnatural now. Genetically modified, aren't you? You're a Franken-presenter. I'm a Franken-presenter. <laughs> I like that. I don't know whether... I don't like it as much as Professor Dame, though. Oh, no, 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 I know. Well, talking of Professor Dame's, huge thank you to my special guest, Professor Dame Sue Hill, for providing us some truly fantastic insight today and explaining what NHS genomics actually means. Please don't forget, you can get in touch with us by emailing surgery at the podcast podcastworks.com or you can message me on twitter at dr christian if you've liked what you've heard feel free to give us a five-star rating thanks for listening and we'll see you next time goodbye hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.